So we continue in our Shadowland series today, uh, but you'll notice that we have now moved to the book of 2 Samuel. So from where we left off last week, if you were here, to where we find ourselves today, there have been some notable developments. Namely, David is now the crowned king of Israel. He's no longer just the prince of Wales. The crown is on his head. That means that King Saul has died, uh, and Saul's death did not happen at the hand of David. You can read about Saul's expiration at the very end of 1 Samuel. It happened on the battlefield. There were some Philistine arrows that came over. Uh, Saul got wounded. He realizes that he's doomed or he feels doomed. doesn't want to be taken captive, so he opts to fall on his own sword. And thus the narrative ends uh, with a lot of fear and not a lot of faith. Uh, that, of course, clears space for David's ascension to the throne. You can read about that in the first few chapters of 2 Samuel. And that leads us to the doorstep of today's passage. It's a narrative about one of David's first orders of business as the new king of Israel. And what unfolds, as you have heard from the reading, is, to say the least, an odd episode. Among other things, David decides to set up a new capital. That's the city that's now known as Jerusalem, still there over in Israel. Sometimes it's called Zion. Sets up a new capital. Immediately following this decision, his top priority is to get Israel's most sacred object, the Ark of the Covenant, situated in the new royal city. And as we'll see, it's dangerous business. In fact, it's deadly. Yet danger and death eventually give way to dancing because today's story culminates in joyful, even ecstatic reverence. And both of those two descriptives are essential in the context of the sermon, the reverence and also the joy, because that's the way that we should all approach God. That is what God wants for us. That is what God wants from us. And the events of this chapter, 2 Samuel 6, show us, on the one hand, how joyful reverence is instilled in David, but they also tell us about how joyful reverence towards God is nourished in, in you and me. And that's, that's what I want to explore today. That's the subject. And I want to do it by attention to three big narrative elements in the text. We're going to start with the disaster, and then next comes the delight. And lastly, there is a domestic fight between David and his wife. So keep your coffee nearby. Keep your Bibles even closer. We begin with verses 1 through 11. David's got a splendid idea. It's motivated by very godly and commendable intentions. Look at verses 1 and 2. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000 people, he arose and he went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned with the cherubim. Now, before I say more about what's unfolding here, let me say a few words about the ark itself. What is said ark? You may know the Noah story. This is not that kind of ark. This is the other ark in the Bible. It was also commissioned by God himself, but it was much smaller and it, it was not a life raft. If you've seen Indiana Jones number one, you'll have an advantage here. <laughs> the Ark of the Covenant measured about three by three by two. It was made out of wood and it was overlaid with gold. And on the upper portion of each side, there were winged celestial beings known as cherubim. Read about those in the text just there. Now the Ark was religiously significant for several reasons. First, partly because of what was inside of it. In fact, there were several items inside the ark. It was a repository for the Ten Commandments, 
Uh, it, was, it held a piece of manna bread, and it had the staff of Aaron. If you want to know about those things, you can ask me afterwards. After, I'll be over there. I'll be glad to tell you what those things are. The point is that these objects were all continuing evidence that God had indeed worked among the people, that God had showed up, had been present. That was in the ark. Now, the top of the ark was also significant. This was a gold slab that spanned the length of the, length of the box, and it was called the mercy seat. Can you say that with me? Mercy seat. There we go. It's not very hard, is it? So you're very smart. This is the place where the blood of, of animals, kind of grotesque to us, but blood of animals would be periodically sprinkled on the mercy seat for the forgiveness of sins, forgiveness of human transgressions. That's just a very, very vivid way of reminding uh, that when, when it comes to forgiveness from God to us, there's a cost. There always is a cost when it comes to forgiveness. Thirdly, the solemnity of the ark was tied up with its overarching meaning. Jewish commentator Robert Alter says this. He says, The ark was God's terrestrial throne, invested with awesome and divine power. Put another way, you might think of the ark, the ark as the earthly footstool at the base of God's heavenly throne room seat. And it's helpful to remember that a royal footstool is the place that you would bow and plead for mercy. If you're going to a king or a queen and you want mercy, you kneel at their feet. You may even kiss their feet, and their feet are sitting on a little stool. That's why the top of the ark was known as the mercy seat. See what I'm saying here? So all of this is a, is a glorious 3D representation of God's authority, of God's lordship. But the ark was not just a representation. It wasn't just an image or a symbol. It was also an active manifestation of God's presence and God's power. In other words, we're not just dealing with an artifact here. Try to think about how to, 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 to explain this. The best analogy I could come up with was, was Skype or FaceTime. Uh, on the one hand, you're looking at the image of another person, but it's more than an image. In some sense, you're actually encountering that other person. It's kind of how it was with the ark, too. Look at verse 5. It says that when they marked, marched before the ark, they celebrated before the Lord. Not just a box. They celebrated before the Lord. Not just some religious memento. God was actually there, in a sense. And that is why what David sets out to do in verses 1 through 4 is so incredibly important. He's bringing the ark, the lost ark, as it were, from a place of obscurity back to a place of prominence. Unlike Saul, David is going to ensure that the new capital of Israel is not just a place where the king rules, it's going to be a place where God is honored and worshipped. That's what's going on here. Verse 1 tells us David rounded up about 30,000 people for this holy mission. Let's look at verses 3 through 5. And they carried the ark on the new cart, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill, and Uzzah and Ahio and the sons of Abinadab were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark, and David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and castanets. We'll try to get a castanet in the band next week so you can see what that looks like. Uh, a lot of fanfare. All designed to capture the gravitas of the ark. Everybody's stoked. Then, in the midst of all this glorious fanfare, there's an unexpected bump. You can gulp now. It's appropriate. The ark slides. Uh, the, the, the cart slides. It looks like the ark's going to hit the ground. That would be a disaster if this holy object fell on the ground. Stare at verses 6 and 7. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the ox stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and the Lord struck him down there because of this error. 
and he died right there beside the ark. That really kills the parade, eh? If anything, we would expect the opposite of what happened here. I mean, Uzzah, we would think he needs a big thank you. This, give this guy a promotion, which is why what actually transpires is so disorienting. It feels wrong. It felt wrong to David. He's angry. That's what verse 8 says. This is an incident, as one scholar says, that defies our normal ethical categories. So what is this disaster and death all about? Is God just being capricious? Is he being temperamental and fussy? The answer is no. There's actually something quite important going on here, so let's not be too reactionary and simplistic in interpreting this event. The explanation for it, however, is not in this particular passage. You've got to actually look elsewhere in the Old Testament. You've got to look back to the book of Numbers, chapter 4, and you've got to look forward to the book of Chronicles, chapter 15. And here's the gist. When God commissioned the ark, it came with rules, very specific rules on how it was to be handled. And let me mention a few of those. First off, when you move the ark, a cart, anything with a wheel, was never to be used. The ark was supposed to be carried by human beings. It actually had little ring poles. You could slide the poles in and carry it around. That's what those were for. Worship is personal. It needs to involve people, not machines. Secondly, the ark was to be carried by certain people. They were known as Levites. They were commissioned for this work. Uzzah did not have that security clearance. And finally, this is the golden rule of the ark. Nobody was to touch it. Nobody was to touch it. Now, to appreciate these rules, I think you have to take at least two big things into account. First off, you need to think of them like a warning label. Think of it like a sign on a fence around a power transmitter. Warning, do not touch or you will be electrocuted. A sign like that is not mean, it is not cruel, it is not vindictive, it's not posted so that you won't have fun. That's not what it's about. It's actually given for your good. That's what the rules for the ark are like. This is about the nature of things. You can't ask fire not to burn you. In Vancouver, you can't ask someone who is a celiac to eat bread pudding and not get sick. Right? This is about the nature of things. God, God has a nature. God's being has a nature. Can't be violated. That leads to the second observation. Th- these rules, they weren't just for their own sake. They weren't capricious. God is not a bureaucrat who just likes to make up rules, right? They reflect and honor the holiness of God. The holiness of God. Now, what does that mean? That's the Bible's way of saying that we don't make God up. In truth, he's the one who made us up. God does not exist according to our specifications. We exist according to his. And in the context of today's scripture, The holiness of God means that good intentions are not enough. God has an objective reality, and any meaningful relationship with him has got to be attuned to that. You can't just approach God in any old way. God is not someone we fabricate. He's not like the eclectic, hodgepodge spirituality that people fabricate in Vancouver. Maybe we fabricate some of that, too. It's not this God. In verses 1 through 11, everybody has lost sight of this. They thought they could relate to God in any old way so long as they had good intentions. I mean, I think David probably thought that putting the ark on a new cart, he had the, thing, he had the cart built for the ark, he probably thought that was fitting, only the best for God. Maybe he thought the ark would be safer on a cart. Well, that's a problem. As one old pastor wrote, ever think that you need to protect God? Anytime you think you need to protect God, you can be sure that you're now worshiping an idol. Same thing's probably true for Uzzah. One commentator says this, Uzzah reached out to catch the ark because he thought if it hit the ground, it would be defiled. But boy, was he wrong. 
Here's the thing. Biblically speaking, it's not dirt that desecrates God's holiness. Dirt, soil, and mud, they've never offended God. Dirt is everything that God's always wanted it to be, but you and I are not. We're not close to what God created us to be. The Bible calls that sin. And it's why God's holiness can sometimes have a deadly effect on people. So it comes to this. The disastrous death in verse 7 is a dramatic reminder of God's holiness. That's how commentator Phil Long puts it. Now, truth be told, in theory, everybody in verses 1 through 11, everybody should have been struck down. All the rules of the ark have been broken in this story. In fact, God's been quite patient. But then Uzzah breaks the golden rule of the ark. He touches it. At a critical moment in Israel's history, a moment when the worship of God is finally being restored, recovered by a new king, God sends a message loud and clear. I am not your puppet. I am not your PA. You don't fit me into your reality. I fit you into mine. This is a vivid, even a painful reminder of divine holiness. And while it is certainly frightening and intense on one level, it's not meant to lock us in fear. When God is terrible, it is not to make us frightened. Those are John Calvin's words. David's initial response to Uzzah, his initial response to Uzzah, actually begins to move us towards this broader horizon, this larger sense of purpose for this otherwise disastrous events. David's petrified, but not for the reason that we might think he's petrified. He's not put out for the reason we might think. Look at verse 9. David says, how can the ark, how can God's presence be near me? That's a little bit different from the reaction that you and me probably had to this story. Most of us read this story and we say, how can I abide a God like that? That's not what David says. David says, David's got a more profound revelation. He says, how can a God like this abide me? Those are words of humility. And humility is a core element of reverence. And without reverence, you can't get near God. According to the Bible, we know ourselves in relation to God, not God in relation to ourselves. That's what reverence means. God's the noun, we're the adjectives. Now, this type of humble reverence that David displays in verse 9, that's what keep, keeps us from making God into our own specifications. It gives us ears to hear God himself, not our own ideas and preferences projected onto God. And so we begin to see that this whole encounter, this disaster, this encounter with God's holiness is not actually meant to reduce us to cautious timidity and panic and fear before God. Oh, no, it's actually meant to, uh, to help humans, to help David, to help Israel approach God in the right way so that real, deep relationship can actually happen. That's the real purpose. I think it's helpful to think about it this way. A core ingredient of genuine relationship that we have with each other, a core ingredient of, for real relationship is otherness. You, relationship can only involve with somebody outside of yourself, somebody with their own in, objective and independent reality. And oftentimes, the way that that is made known, the way that otherness is manifest, is when somebody does something we don't control. When they do something or think something or say something that's different from what we would do or think or say. If you control everything that a friend or a spouse or a colleague does, then you're undermining authentic relationship. That's a, they're a pawn. They're under your thumb. That's a counterfeit relationship. You're just talking to yourself, and yourself always agrees. Same thing's true with God. His holiness guards against it, guards against overfamiliarity, guards against presumption, and therefore it protects and ensures the possibility of real, authentic relationship. After Saul's administration, Israel needed this reminder. David needed this reminder. God is not in anybody's pocket. He's got the whole world in his hands. That's how it works. We need this reminder, too. 
Why so? Because apart from deep reverence for God, I start to play God. Voltaire, the French philosopher, once said, God made man and woman in his own image, and then we return the favor. And that's what we're constantly doing, according to the Bible. Eugene Peterson puts it this way, left to ourselves, we turn God into an object, something we can deal with, something we can use for our benefit, whether that's a feeling or an idea or an image. That's our constant danger. And and to the degree that that happens, the possibility of relationship with God actually evaporates. And so what happens to Uzzah is just a warning about this. And by the way, the fact that this incident is so very bizarre reinforces the point at hand. Nobody made this story up. This is an encounter with the living God. And he's not a God of our own making, and he's certainly not a God designed to win popularity contests. As C.S. Lewis once wrote of Aslan, he is good, but he ain't tame. C.S. Lewis didn't say ain't, that was me. He is good, (laughs) but he ain't tame, okay? Before we move on, I want to give a little bit of application here. For us, right now in Vancouver, God's holiness means that when it comes to worshiping God, to acknowledging the reality of God in our lives, we don't get to make it all up. This is tough medicine for us, tough medicine for me. It's tough medicine for us in a place like this. We are not totally free to innovate out of good intentions when it comes to worshiping God. Sometimes we've got leeway for sure, but not in every arena. Now, when I speak about worship here, I'm not just talking about what we're doing this morning at St. Pete's, singing, praying, preaching, that kind of stuff. In the Bible, worship's no less than that, but you better believe it's a lot more. St. Paul puts it this way in Romans 12, when he says, spiritual worship means giving your life all that you are to God's service. So basically, you present your life as a blank check to God, to live God's way, to let God use your life, your body, your money, your time, your perspective, your money, all of that in accordance with his good purposes. So God's holiness does have implications for how we live, which is to say how we worship. The Bible says we were created to live a certain way. God created us with certain purposes in mind. Worship is just about honoring that vision. And that means, if I might quote John Calvin again, he's my homeboy this week, it means that our devotion is only acceptable to the Lord insofar as it conforms to his will, as it conforms to his good purposes. I think we all need to wrestle with this a bit more, starting with yours truly. Let me add something else, kind of drive home this application. If you don't take the holiness of God seriously, you can end up with what I call polluted spirituality. For example, the prosperity gospel. That's when you think God's basic mission is to materially prosper those who follow him, to give you a condo in the Trump Tower or something like that. You can only reach that conclusion if you first lost sight of God's holiness, because God's holiness, after all, reminds us that God is other. He's different from us. He's not like us. He has different values. And if you lose sight of that, then you get a warped expectation about the goal of God's love and God's care. You start thinking that God's love should look like more money. That's called projection. It's what happens when we lose sight of God's holiness, when we, when we forget who God actually is, when we reach out and presume to touch the ark. And that leads to a situation where people use the name of God to hide from the real God. That's awful. That's a disaster. But it's Sunday, and I want you to have a happy afternoon. So we're going to move from disaster to delight now, okay? I want you to have a happy afternoon. And based on how the chapter begins, the way it ends is quite startling. Uh, Gladness comes on the threshold of grief. Disaster turns to delight. Dancing displaces death. So how on earth did that happen? How did this ecstatic joy that we read about come to accompany 
David's newfound reverence for God. Now, initially, because of Uzzah's death, David cancels the parade, and the ark is sent to the home of somebody nearby, a guy called Obed-Edom. And this is actually a turning point. Look at verses 11 and 12. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. And it was told to King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David then went and brought the ark, from the, house, the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David, Jerusalem, with rejoicing. So in the house of Obed, God's presence brings blessing. And that's especially starting because Obed is a Gittite. That's the same ethnic group as Goliath, the giant enemy of Israel. In other words, God is prospering a foreigner, uh, an outsider. And so another side of God is on display here. You see, while God is most certainly other, he's different from us, God does not want to remain as an alienated outsider to us. God doesn't want us to be overly familiar and presumptuous, but he does want us to be intimately familiar with him to know his heart, to marvel with gratitude. Verses 11 and 12 tell us that God desires fellowship with his creation. God wants to, God's intention is to use his presence and his power to bless all kinds of people. So Uzzah's death does not actually display God's core desire. Uzzah's death is about the requirements of God's holiness. That was not supposed to happen. Uzzah's error is just the final straw in a whole series of errors. But none of that was, that's not the way things are supposed to be. When the ark is used in a normal and the proper way, it becomes a channel for God's blessing and for God's salvation. When God is honored and reverenced, you will encounter goodness. That's what's being communicated here. Think of it like this. The same electricity that can shock and kill you also provides the power to enhance your life, to make it better in all sorts of ways. That's, and that's the real purpose of electricity. So too with God's presence. So despite the fact that humanity is unholy, God is actually here for relationship. He did not come to strike down, but to bless and to restore. God is for us. In verse 12, David gets this second revelation. He hears, a, he, he hears about Obed's house. There's a paradigm shift. A penny drops. He sees another side of God. And he discovers that while God is indeed holy, he's not like the other gods. He's not like me and you. He is here to do good. He is with us. He is for us. God's ark is in Israel not to incinerate, but to elevate, to bless, to help, to heal. That's why it's there. That's what David discerns, and that's why the parade gets restarted. Look at verse 13 and 14. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, they sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal, and David danced before the Lord, before the ark, with all of his might, and he was wearing a linen ephod. Okay, so this time David reads the user's manual first. And then he resumes to move the ark up to Jerusalem. It's all being done in the right way, which means God is being reverenced. God is being taken seriously. Ark's being carried. The right kind of people are carrying it. This is about reverence. But because David has seen that God's desire is to bless, there's also joy. After all, David is cutting a serious rug here. In Hebrew, verse 14 that, that Hebrew there is sensational. It's the only time this word's used in the Bible, and you can actually translate it like this. David was whirling with all of his might. David was whirling with all of his might. He's dancing like there ain't no tomorrow. And so what we see in these verses is ecstatic joy and reverence all together. That's where David lands. That's where God wants us to land. According to 2 Samuel 6, 
at least two key spiritual insights have to combine for this to happen. Here's how I like to distill them. Number one, I got to see that there is a God and it is not me. God is not my PA. Don't fit God into my story. He fits me into his. That's verses 1 through 11. That's the source of reference. But then I got to see that this God who will be referenced is also immeasurably good. He's here to help, to save, to bless. That's verse 12 through 14. That's the source of joy. This is about knowing on the one hand that I'm utterly unholy and unworthy, but yet that God deeply desires to be near me and to, to be near, near you. That's the heart of joyful reverence. I should note, by the way, that this isn't all that different from our most cherished human-to-human relationships. Think about it. If somebody knows all of your baggage, yet they still deeply value and deeply love you, that melts your heart. That will make you sing and dance like nothing else, not just for a day, but maybe for a year or years. That's what David's experiencing, but on an unprecedented level. Joyful reverence. Now, with regard to this joyful reverence, I want to dwell a little bit more on it because there is something else we can say, and the last portion of the text sheds light here. Let's look at verse 16 and also verse 20. And the ark of the Lord came up into the city of David, and Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window, and she saw her husband, King David, leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And then in verse 20, and David returned to bless his household, but Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, oh, how the king of Israel really honored himself today uncovering himself before the eyes of his servants and female servants, just like a vulgar fellow, shamelessly uncovering himself and dancing wildly around. So David's delight turns into a domestic fight. He's become a whirling dervish, and uh, he's fraternizing with the masses. He's down amongst the people, verse 19. And McCall is furious, just like a good Southern Baptist. She ain't happy about all that dancing. Mm -mm. Verse 20 is biting sarcasm. She is not amused. Why? The clue is in verse 16. It actually is written two times in this text. McCall, the daughter of Saul. It's on purpose. That wasn't an accident that that was included there. In other words, here's someone who was raised in a royal household, and she has some very definite ideas about how royal people conduct themselves. Very definite idea. David is trampling on all of that right now, breaking all the protocol. You're not like my dad Saul. You're mingling with the proletariat. You're not showing poise and posture and stiff upper lip. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what royals are supposed to do. That's what's going on in her mind. David's being uncouth. He's acting beneath himself. In Mikkel's eyes, it's shameful. She despises him. But you know what? David is not concerned with her eyes on him. David is concerned with God's eyes on him. Verse 21. David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to make me the prince of Israel. It was before the Lord and the people of the Lord that I am celebrating before the Lord. And that tells us more about joyful reverence before God. You see, when you have it, you're much more focused on God's grace than on social graces. I mean, just look at David's explanation. I was chosen by the Lord. That's not gloating. That's actually gratitude. David's at a place in this moment where he knows that his entire existence not just his crown, but also his life is from the hand of God. His entire existence. I am the recipient of grace. How can I not celebrate? And so David refuses to stand in his own dignity because that is inappropriate before God. Says one commentator, in the presence of the true king of Israel, in the presence of God, the Lord, David knows he's just one of the crowd. 
being sustained by God's provision and favor, just like the lowliest people in Israel. Additionally, I should add that when you're actually abiding in a place of joyful reverence, when you're gripped by God's grace, you can expect to be doing what David is doing in verses 18 and 19. You lower yourself to raise up others. David's out feeding the people, the masses personally, right? Blessing them. The king is in the streets. That's just his way of imitating what God's been doing for him. McCall cannot abide that. She can't stomach how God's grace causes David to dispense with social graces. She cannot abide it, but a David, David abides in it. God has become his leading thought. That's how Charles Spurgeon puts it. David is willing to risk being misunderstood and even humiliated for pursuing a deeper relationship with God. That's a sign of external reverence. And as somebody sang back in the 1980s, it's more than a feeling. It's more than a feeling. Is that me? Is that you? Reverence and joy before the Lord. This is how all the threads in this little text intersect. And this gives us a picture of, of true connection with our maker. On the one hand, it's about genuine relationship. God does not exist to our specifications. God is outside of us. But on the other hand, God is for us. God is with us. And so therefore, the, the, the spiritual life does not reduce to duty. It's got to be infused with delight because God loves you. That's what God achieves in 2 Samuel 6. David's got to get to that place, and guess what? So do we. So do I. In fact, this becomes all the more clear, abundantly clear, in fact, in the story of Jesus Christ, because God's doing the same thing there, but in a slightly different way. Now, some of you may be thinking, what does Jesus have to do with all this? I know about Jesus, and 2 Samuel 6 does not make me think about Jesus. So I want you to bear with me for a minute. In the New Testament, in the book of 2 Corinthians, St. Paul writes these words. He says, all the promises of God find their yes and their amen in Jesus Christ. What are God's promises? Well, on the, on the one hand, God's totally committed to his holiness. That's his nature. He's not going to ditch it. And if he did ditch it, if he became the God that sometimes we want him to be, well, then we wouldn't be able to have a real relationship with him. And there wouldn't be anyone to come in from the outside to save us from all the traps and thing, pitfalls that we get stuck in. But at the same time, God is deeply committed to mercy. He desires to bless his creatures. And he remains true to that even when we reject him. That's the amazing thing about the gospel. Now we can see how the Ark of the Covenant palpably reflects both of those commitments. But you know what? Jesus does it more. Because the, everything the Ark signifies actually converges in Jesus Christ. I like to think of it this way. Centuries after the time of King David, God decided not just to rest his feet on the earth. He slid that ark aside. He moved that footstool out of the way, and he descended among the masses himself. And when he did that, he wore the face of Jesus of Nazareth. And guess what? The, the effect of Jesus on human lives is the exact same as the effect of the ark of God's presence here in 2 Samuel 6, because all of God's commitments find their end in Jesus. Let me explain. On the one hand, Jesus displays God's holiness. Just look at his life. So different from, from other lives, so much better, so much more noble. In fact, the closer I get to Jesus, the more I see how filthy my life is, how unworthy it is. By comparison with him, I'm a failed human being. I deserve to be struck down just like Uzzah. When you see how perfect a human Jesus was. On the other hand, however, Jesus exhibits God's mercy. He is God's favor and God's blessing over humanity. He's God's way of saying, I want to be close to you and share life with you, and that's the bottom line. Now, you might see there's a little bit of a tension between these two values here. 
holiness and mercy. How can they coexist? And that leads us to the ultimate reason that Jesus, that God became man, to touch the ark. But with Jesus, he didn't touch the ark because of a reflex. It wasn't an accident. It was not inappropriate. It was not an error. It was very much on purpose. And that purpose was love. And the consequence was his death in our place on the cross. And that's how Jesus honors the requirements of God's holiness in our stead. And that means that we can now draw close. It means that we can revel before the Lord as sinners who are now saints. To the degree that you inhale this, this grace, your heart will be infused with reverential joy. Reverence because you'll see somebody had to die for you to be close to the living God. But joy because you see that God himself actually did that out of love. That's what Jesus is all about. Have you heard? It's how God gets us out on the dance floor with King David. A stanza from an old hymn by John Newton encapsulates it better than I ever could. Let me read it to you. He says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed.